These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Once upon a time, there was a woman who dug for fossils. In the early 19th century, she made some amazing discoveries. She became well-known in Britain, Europe, and America, yet she was not eligible to join the Geological Society of London because she was a woman. Therefore, she didn't get the credit she deserved for her scientific contributions. After watching many others take credit for her work, she began to get suspicious of everyone. It wasn't until after her death that she began getting noticed for her work. In 2010, 163 years after her death, the Royal Society included this lady on the list of the 10 British women who have most influenced the history of science. Her name was Mary Anning, and today I have her story on this Coffee with Jeff rebroadcast. Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic I'd like to know more about, and then write it into a hopefully engaging story. At least, that's the idea. So this is a repeat of a show I did back on March 20th, 2016. world was a lot different back then. Sorry about not having a new show. I was on vacation, camping until Thursday, and I really thought I could finish the story I was working on by today, but it turned out not to be so. The story I chose, I realized, needed some more research to get right, and and I thought I'd rather wait and do it right than try to rush a show that wasn't complete. I hope you don't mind. So instead, I'm replaying this older show. Um, I'll be back in two weeks with something good. So right now, let's hear the story of a fossil hunter back in the early 19th century. Aren't they really just a part of life? Part of a woman's life, maybe. But I can remember the good old days when there were all men in my department, and we didn't have these problems. You didn't have the production output you've got now either. Look, Brad, you've got a new bearings inspector who happens to be a woman. You need someone, and there isn't a man available. It seems to me that whether the gal adds up to trouble or not is pretty much up to you. A neighbor who was standing with two other women watching an equestrian show was holding Mary. Elizabeth Hastings had offered to take the child for the day to give Mary's mother a break from raising a toddler. It was August 19, 1800, and Mary was 15 months old. The three adults and the young child were under an elm tree when dark clouds began to form. Suddenly, the crowd was deafened by a huge crash and blinded by a flash of light. When the people looked over, the three women were flat on the ground. The tree had been struck by lightning. People quickly ran over, including Mary's father, Richard. There was nothing they could do for the three ladies. But the child, 
was still breathing, although very faintly, and she was still in the clutches of Elizabeth Hastings' arms. She was quickly rushed home and revived in a bath of warm water. A doctor declared her survival miraculous. Soon after the lightning strike, the community in which the family lived noticed a change in the small child. Her name was Mary Anning, and she was lucky to be alive at all. Her parents, Richard and Molly Anning, had ten children, and only Mary and her brother Joseph survived past the age of four. Now, this wasn't unusual in the 1800s, as half the children born in Britain died before the age of five, smallpox and measles being the main cause. She was born on May 1799 in Lyme Regis, a coastal town in West Dorset, England. This is important to our story because the town lies in Lyme Bay on the English Channel coast. The coastline in Lyme Regis might be the most unstable in all of England. But the cliffs and beaches were a fossil hunter's dream, and Mary's father, Richard, who was a cabinet maker, would supplement his income by mining the coastal cliffside fossil beds and selling his finds to tourists. Before the lightning incident, Mary was a sickly child, and the residents thought her as being sort of dull. It is said, though, after the lightning, she seems to have changed. Her personality became more outgoing, and she seemed to be more intelligent. Maybe it was the lightning strike, or maybe it was the kindness of the townspeople, but Mary became a joy for both her parents. The family was very poor and lived so close to the sea that during the storms, they would have to climb out of an upstairs bedroom window to escape the flooding. Mary had an extremely limited education, but the Congregationalist Sunday School, which she attended, taught her to read and write. Her faith was always very important to her, and, and the church she belonged to emphasized the importance of education to the poor. Between 1792 and 1812 was a bad time to be poor in England, with both the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars causing food shortages. While the price of wheat came close to tripling, wages for the working class didn't change at all. And if being poor wasn't bad enough, they were considered religious dissenters, not following the Church of England. Dissenters were looked down upon, and they were not allowed into universities or the army, and were excluded by law from several professions. The cliffs by her home were, and still are, the best places to find marine animal fossils. About 200 million years ago, the area lay near the equator at the bottom of the tropical sea. Marine animals were often quickly buried in the seafloor mud and preserved. Richard often took his daughter on fossil hunting expeditions to make money for the family. Sometimes older brother Joseph would tag along. Mary loved the adventure of climbing on the cliffs with her dad and quickly learned the art of cleaning fossils with a small pick and a brush to make them more valuable. They would sell these fossils to tourists from a table in front of the house. And while the area was an excellent fossil place, it was also a dangerous one. The cliffs could be dangerously unstable. This was all too apparent in 1807 when her father fell, falling more than 20 feet and had rocks fall on top of him. Once he regained his consciousness, he was able to stumble home, but he was never the same after that. The thrill of fossil hunting was gone, and he rarely went out. He was in constant pain. He had coughing fits and occasionally spit up blood. 
He got worse over the years, and in November of 1810, he died at the age of 44. He left his family with huge debts, no savings, and his wife Molly very pregnant. Mary was only 12 years old at the time. Next few years were very hard and must have been awful for the Anning family. Molly was just trying to avoid jail or the poorhouse, which was the way back then for people who could not pay their debts. Joseph eventually became an apprentice to learn upholstery, and Mary would take odd jobs like running errands to make a little extra cash. She was a very intelligent child who had an extensive vocabulary and could easily carry on a conversation with adults. She was called a spirited young person of independent character who did not much care for undue politeness or pretense. She was never afraid to speak her mind. It had been a few years since Mary had gone fossil hunting, but it was during the night of a thunderstorm that Mary came to a very important, life-changing decision. At first light, she packed up her tools and headed out to the cliffs. She spent all morning finding little fossils, but one of her last finds was an ammonite. Ammonites are perhaps the most widely known fossil, possessing a typical ribbed spiral-formed shell. They lived in the sea at the time of the dinosaurs and went extinct with them. Before Mary got off the beach, she had sold it to a tourist for half a crown, which was a lot of money to Mary. After that, along with her brother, they were on the constant hunt for fossils. It was in the summer of 1811 that Joseph was hunting by himself, Mary staying at home to help her mom with sewing, that he found something he thought was a crocodile skull and brought it home. He quickly gave up, but Mary thought there was something more to it. She went back to see if she could find the rest of the creature. For months, she dug and chiseled out more of the fossilized bones, finding almost all of it. Many men in town helped dig it out, and everybody in town was aware that she had found something truly special. It was the first ichthyosaurus, as it would be named seven years later. They were able to sell it for 23 pounds, which was enough to feed the family for six months. The specimen was displayed in London, and it was a huge hit, with people coming from all over to see the strange curiosity. Everyone was trying to figure out just what this odd birdfish thing was, or where it came from. But with all the talk and examinations, no one mentioned Mary or the superb work she did on cleaning the fossil. The museum was given credit for that. Now Mary was never one who dressed in style. Her basic outfit was one of several layers of clothing, since it would get cold down by the water. She had sturdy boots and a battered hat. Most of the time, she looked pretty filthy with matted hair and calloused fingers. And although she had a tremendous curiosity in science, in the small town of Lyme Regis, there was no hope of a scientific education. Her situation completely changed when she was 15 years old. She met a man named Reverend William Buckland. Not only was he a deeply religious man, but he was also an early pioneer in the new field of geology. Every book that dealt with rocks, shells, and fossils that he could find was in his collection. Once he met Mary, the two became lifelong friends. Buckland was from Oxford and would take vacations in Lyme Regis, and while there, Mary would pick his brains for all she could get out of him. She learned a lot from him. She also learned a lot from her love of reading, 
but since there wasn't too many books available to her, she would read the same books over and over again. Her quest for knowledge was insatiable. Before she was 20, she uncovered several more complete ichthyosauruses of various sizes. What happened with her first ichthyosaurus would become common for Mary's discoveries. Never would she get a credit or even a mention by those who published the findings. By the time she was 21, she was well known to many scientists, yet she, her brother, and mother still lived in poverty, as did most people in the area. By 1818, things had gotten really bad for the family. Then, Lieutenant Colonel James Birch visited their home, and he found them about to sell their furniture so they could pay the rent. He took matters into his own hands. He wrote a letter to a fellow geologist named Gideon Mantle. The letter, dated March 1820, said, I have not forgot my promise to select for you some fine things from the Blue Lias. I cannot, however, perform it yet, as I have a great occasion for every individual specimen I can muster. The fact is, I'm going to sell my collection for the benefit of the poor woman Molly and her son Joseph and daughter Mary at Lyme, who have in truth found almost all these fine things, which have been submitted to scientific investigation. I may never possess what I'm about to part with, yet in doing so, I have the satisfaction of knowing that the money will be well applied. The sales to be at Bullocks and Piccadilly in the middle of April. The auction that Birch held brought in more than 400 pounds, which is equal to about 50,000 pounds today, and all that money went to the Annings. To Mary and her family, they had never known such kindness, and for the first time they felt financially secure. It also made Mary somewhat famous around Europe, as many people began asking about this young lady from Lyme Regis. It also changed the way people looked at her in her own town. Before, she was treated with some amusement as the strange, young, uneducated girl who was pretending to be a real fossil hunter. After the sale, she found herself being treated with a little more respect. The work continued after the auction, and Mary continued to make wonderful discoveries, but of course they were rarely credited to her, but to those who purchased them. In 1824, she played a key role in discovering that corporalites, better known as bezoar stones at the time, were actually fossilized feces. It had become a fascination with her friend William Buckland. This was huge in the world of dinosaur research, as an examination of dinosaur feces could provide clues to what the creature's diet was. Then after years of saving the little money she made, Mary was able to buy her own home in a better part of Lyme Regis. Along with her mother and brother, they moved into a place of their own. Better than that, the home had a glass storefront that became a real store, Anning's Fossil Depot. Over the years, she would have highs and lows financially, but the fact that they owned their own place made things a little bit better. Her next big discovery was in 1828, when she was digging in the cold of December. It was something that no one had ever seen before. It had a long tail with a diamond-shaped tip. It had claws, wings, and a huge skull with a rounded jaw and a beak. It seemed to be a cross between a vampire bat and a reptile. Mary had found the first pterosaur, specifically a dimorphodon, the earliest of the pterosaurs. This discovery was debated for a while as to whether it was real or a fake, but eventually it was declared real. 
Of course, Mary wasn't part of the debate because women were not allowed in the Geological Society. Her friend, William Buckland, was given the credit for the discovery. Now Mary was 30 years old, and at the time, this was old maid status. Her brother, who had been her constant companion ever since they were kids, had gotten married and moved to a new house with his wife. Mary and Joseph's new wife didn't get along all so well. Mary had always dreamed of traveling the world, and it looked like she would never get out of Lyme Regis. In her whole life, she had never been out of the little town, but then, in 1829, she was invited to London. And she said, Should anything occur to prevent me from accepting the invitation, it'll be the death of me. While there, she was able to visit the Geological Society and the London Museum. It must have been amazing for her to witness the big city after spending her whole life in a little town, seeing all the shops with all the people crowding the streets. Eventually, she returned home. Mary's fourth major discovery was a prehistoric fish. Overall, when one considers where Mary came from, the time she lived in and all, she had a pretty remarkable life. She was often visited by scientists from all over the world. And we can only guess about how happy she really was. Did she dream of meeting the right person and settling down with a traditional family, or was she happy being single all her life? I'm sure she would have liked to be given more credit for her discoveries. Even today, there's probably fossils in museums all over the world that are the result of her work that she's not recognized for. I'm sure many times people showed up at her shop, bought one of her finds, then left and made the claim that they had made the discovery. But finally, nowadays she's being recognized for her work in helping to understand the prehistoric world. In Lyme Regis, a museum was built on the site of her home, with a wing dedicated to her and her work. Mary Anning died from breast cancer at the age of 47 on March 9, 1847. Charles Dickens wrote an article about her life in February 1865 in his magazine All Year Round that emphasized the difficulties she had overcome. He ended his article with the words, The carpenter's daughter has won a name for herself and has deserved to win it. Watch Mr. Wizard. Now, Mr. Wizard's not his real name, but that's what all the kids in the neighborhood call him because he shows them the magic and mystery of science in everyday living. Oh, uh, Buzz, one of the kids in the neighborhood, is coming in the door right now. So let's join him and watch Mr. Wizard. A little bit before I go, I began listening to this old show and I thought, wow, I really did it bad back then. I hope I've gotten better. I heard myself stumbling through a few words and phrases and I'm like, wow, why didn't I re-record that? To be honest, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's hard enough listening to myself on a recording, let alone when I know I'm not doing something great. I think next time when I have to rebroadcast the story, I'll just re-record it. I mean, I think I'm doing it better now. What do you think? I don't know. Anyway, I apologize for rerunning an old show. I'm going to really try hard to 
have a good show in two weeks. And I've got some ideas on how to spice up the show in the future. So hopefully that'll happen. I don't know. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link at the Coffee with Jeff website. If you've got a few coins you can afford to donate, you'd make me forever happy. Just go to my Patreon page. Again, you can find a link on the Coffee with Jeff website. That's coffeewithjeff, all one word, dot com. And if you think about it, why don't you tell your friends about the show? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Story ideas are always welcome. And thank you to Nancy Fry for a couple good suggestions this week. I want to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to this show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks with an original Coffee with Jeff episode. Coffee with Jeff. Thank you.